There's a new Bible translation that is selling millions of copies around the world. It's unlike any translation you've ever seen before, but I say that in a bad way. The Passion Translation is produced by Brian Simmons, who claims that God gave him secrets of Hebrew and Greek. Jesus Christ came into my room. He breathed on me and he commissioned me and he spoke to me and said, I'm commissioning you to translate, to translate the Bible into the translation, into the, the translation project, project that I'm giving you to do. And, and he promised that he would help me and he promised me he would give me secrets language. of the Hebrew language. And I felt downloads coming instantly. I received downloads. It was like I got a chip put inside of me. I got a connection inside of me to hear him better, to understand the scriptures better, and hopefully to translate. Now, the reason why this thing's selling millions of copies is probably because it's being endorsed by some very well-known and very highly respected pastors. This to me is very unfortunate because it is a misleading translation, both in the work and in the footnotes itself. This doesn't mean it's all bad, but there are enough problems that I think that we needed to do a project researching this translation. So I actually hired a number of scholars. They did reviews of different books in the Passion Translation, and I'm making those reviews publicly available totally for free. I ask nothing in return. This is one of those reviews. In today's video, I'm interviewing Dr. Nijay Gupta, and he reviewed Galatians in the Passion Translation. His paper is linked down below. You could read it right now. You can also use the timestamps to bounce around this video, get exactly the content you need, whatever's gonna help you. That's the whole goal here. Here's my disclaimer though. I am not anti-supernatural, and I am not persecuting Brian Simmons, although he talks like the critics of this translation are persecuting him. And then he promised that I would be persecuted and I would be misunderstood. And he said, it will get worse until the day you die. It will be persecuted and misunderstood, but I will help you. I will give you secrets. Um, and he also promised me that I would be persecuted. I had brilliant leaders and men of God and mighty brainiacs tell me I had no business to translate the Bible because I was not a Greek scholar. They said, where are your credentials? Who do you think you are? That's not what's happening here. We want to test all things and hold fast to that which is good. Well, we're testing the Passion Translation. And as you'll see in this interview, and I do hope you have time to watch the whole thing, there are reasons to not hold fast to this translation. Dr. Gupta, you reviewed Brian Simmons' translation of Galatians in the Passion Translation, but for people who are just meeting you for the first time, can you tell us a little bit about your own credentials, your focus on Paul's writings in particular, and your emphasis recently on Galatians? Yeah, thanks, Mike. Um, I live here in Portland, Oregon. I teach at Northern Seminary, which is in Chicago land, actually. I teach New Testament. I've been teaching for over 10 years. Uh, I've taught Greek uh, many, many times. I did my undergraduate at Miami University of Ohio. I focused on classical Greek. I went to seminary at Gordon-Conwell, and I focused on biblical languages, Greek, Hebrew, Aramaic, uh, Akkadian, Ecclesiastical, Latin, Septuagintal, Greek. So I, I did a lot of language there. Studied at the University of Durham, uh, famous for uh, names like John Barclay, N.T. Wright, uh, Jimmy Dunn, and those kinds of folks. Had a wonderful time there. Um, I've written seven commentaries. I'm working on two or three more. Uh, I've done a lot of translation work for those commentaries. I've created some of my own translations. We can talk about that later and what that's like. I've worked on some translation stuff with a Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament for Lexham. I did uh, a version of Tobit uh, for that. So I, I've dabbled uh, in translation stuff, but I'm really just fascinated by it. 
because um, I, I get questions all the time from students and pastors, what's the best or what's the right English translation to use? So I've invested a lot of time in trying to help answer those questions. Well, I'm super grateful for you to engage in this issue and to look because you're you're our window into the reality of what's going on with the Passion Translation. You're someone who can say, okay, there's these claims that that Brian Simmons was supernaturally empowered with secrets of Hebrew and Greek, that he's he's sort of unveiling things that other translations have lost or hidden. He came into my room and he blew on me. He breathed on me. And he said, I'm commissioning you, I'm calling you to do a new translation. He promised that he would give me new understanding and new, fresh revelation from his word. And immediately, he gave me a download. Immediately, I began to receive a supernatural download of insight and revelation that has continued to this day. God's given me a lens. Uh, all I can say is God has given me a lens. When I read the Bible, I see it so differently than I ever have before. And he's revealing himself in this hour like never before. The word of God is coming alive to us. It's like we're getting a brand new Bible, isn't it? We need to know what's really going on here. And to have, you know, I, here's my theory is like when Albert Einstein, you know, came up with this theory of relativity, it was, it was brilliant and it was new. But because it was true, other mathematicians, physicists mm -hmm. could look at it and confirm. And they could go, wow, that's brilliance. And if Brian Simmons has brilliant new information about the Bible, then other scholars can look at that and go, wow, look at the brilliance, and they'll recognize it. Or perhaps they'll see something else there. Let's start with um, the nature of the Passion Translation. A lot of people think the Passion Translation is a paraphrase. Um, I've actually seen reviewers treat it as a paraphrase, but not according to its title. I mean, it says it's a translation, and their website says the following, and I'd like to get your thoughts on this. The Passion Translation is a new version of God's Word that is considered a translation because it uses the Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek manuscripts to translate the essential meaning of the scriptures into contemporary English. Yeah, um, you know, it's a product, right? And as a product, they're trying to put their best foot forward. And so if I just read that on a website, I, you know, the thing, Mike, the thing to know about this kind of stuff is there's no FDA regulating translations. There's no FCC out there policing translation. So anything, anyone could publish something and call it a translation and it will be sold on Amazon, you know, till kingdom come. So, you know, it's almost like comparing it to the word natural, right, on a product. Um, there, anyone can call any product natural. There's no regulation. Yeah. And so to call something a translation from the original languages, you know, anyone can do that. And if we have kind of a free market of education, that's fine. The questions that Christians have to ask is, uh, is it faithful, uh, respectful, uh, accurate uh, in relationship to the original text? And I think I've talked to you about this before, but the proof is in the eating. You have to actually test and see, uh, does this really taste like scripture? Is you know, And you know, most people reading the Bible don't know Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic. So they trust the academy and the educated, you know, people in church to really, I'm not going to say police, but really give, uh, give some communal awareness of whether these things are actually faithful to scripture. Yeah. Yeah. We're kind of looking around and you think, 
<clears throat> if this was really bad, somebody would say something, right? Like somebody would point out that there were some serious flaws in this. Of course, that is what the Passion Project that we're doing is all about, <laughs> is bringing that review, bringing that information to people. So um, in your review, and the paper for uh, Dr. Gupta's review is linked below, and you guys can find it there, as well as all the papers as I release them and as these interviews come out on my website, BibleThinker.org. It's all free. It's all totally free just for you guys to be helped and blessed by, and we ask for nothing in return. Um, but in your review, you start by explaining the difference between two very different kinds of Bible translations, official use and supplementary. Like these are two different styles. Can you explain what are those? What does that mean? Yeah, I just I just thought, you know, there are, you know, hundreds of translations out there of different kinds in different languages. And yet our churches tend to use ESV, NIV, NRSV, King James, New King James. Why are these the translations we tend to use? And then those other translations out there, some of them you may have never heard of. And um, for example, New Living Translation is out there. You have the Common English Bible. You have the Message. Um, you have a whole bunch of stuff. But then even beyond that, there's even more. So it got me thinking about how we naturally, um, especially those of us on the other side who are writing these things, think in terms of things that are kind of official, where they have a major committee and they have checks and balances and they have um, kind of a major publisher to back it. Um, and they have kind of major institutions, academic institutions, um, not so it can be ivory towered, but just because there are these methods we've used for hundreds and hundreds of years to ensure that what we're using as the Bible for in English speaking people or Spanish speaking people or French speaking, uh, that this is really going to be faithful to the biblical text. But then we have, you know, again, in a free market, you can make a translation just your own, publish it, put it on Amazon. And so I call those supplemental because most of the people writing those, like N.T. Wright, Scott McKnight is working on his own translation of the New Testament. I know Scott very well. He would not want you to use this as the Bible. He'd want to use it as an aid to uh, for devotion, for study, and things like that. So supplemental in the sense that it's going to be used alongside a more – uh, literal, we call it uh, formal equivalence translation, knowing that any one person is going to make mistakes, they're not going to get it right, and most people don't have the intention of writing a formal official translation. I think that for most Christians, they think that there really is only one kind of Bible, like the supplementary kind is not in their radar at all, and so when they see the Passion Translation being presented, they're thinking of it as a, this is my Bible, this is like the new version I'll use for pretty much everything. And to add to that, Here's what they say on the website, because Simmons does tell people it's good for an official use Bible. And he says the following, the Passion Translation is an excellent translation you can use as your primary text to seriously study God's word. Now, as an official use translation, if you were to evaluate it in that vein, as most people I think are thinking of it, what would you say? I mean, I, I would say it's very irresponsible to you know, as a reader, but even more responsible as a producer of that to say that because any one person is going to make mistakes. And if I were Brian Simmons um, and, I and I felt the calling to do something like that, I would actually put it before my peers and have it kind of evaluated in a very formal way um, by a major publisher, by a team of, of you know, maybe even confessionally like-minded people uh, but but people that can you know look at things like consistency, look at accuracy, look at 
um, consistency of method, a lot of the things that, um, you know, I, I, I said this in my report, but it's very amateurish. Um, I, I've written transla- uh, translations for commentaries on Colossians, First of Thessalonians, and I have to do I have to do tons of work on just consistency, just making sure I use the same words in the same places. Because what you're doing when you write an official translation is you're trying to be as transparent as you can for the reader to see the the biblical text behind what you're writing. Um, and so you want that consistency as often as the biblical writers are being consistent. And, and this just doesn't do that. And, um, I would never want to see it in a pew <laughs> as the pew Bible, but, but even to make those claims, I feel like is really irresponsible. Well, I appreciate your candor. I, I know that generally speaking, uh, the, the scholars I, I've interacted with, they, they want to soften their terms and soften their words. And so I just want the audience to know that when you have scholars who are saying things like very irresponsible, that kind of means a lot. <laughs> saying a lot with, with what's meant to be gentle language, I, in my opinion. Um, I'm more straightforward and I think it's 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 terrible. <laughs> that's well, well, that's well, me. Just you know, over and over, I've con- you know, as you brought this up to me, you know, as we've dialogued throughout the months, I've thought about Eugene Peterson's the message, and if I recall, and you might know better, uh, Peterson was very reluctant to even call it a Bible. Do, do, are you aware of that? I, I saw a video, and I, I can't find it. I was looking for it. I actually saw a video where Peterson talks about how he went to a church, and they were using the message from the pulpit, and he says he cringed. And, and the original I that that raised respect for what he did, mm-hmm. in my view. And the original, as far as I recall, of the message was not uh, versified because, for the very fact that Peterson didn't want it to be used as a Bible, yeah, he wanted to be used as a supplement, as an aid. Yeah. And so yeah, he actually it, said that he reluctantly put the verses in because the publisher demanded it. Yes, one hundred percent. That's true. And. Mm-hmm. Um, I think today, if he were still alive, he, he would be very concerned with if, if I if I told him, hey, I want to use yours as the Bible, he would I guarantee he would talk me out of it. Yeah. And so there's there's something really, I feel like, irresponsible in taking that approach to a single authored uh, uh, translation translation that hasn't been really put before peers to say, hey, this needs to be kind of respectful of the processes we use if you're going to give this to the people of God. Mm -hmm. Now, um, Brian Simmons claims that his work actually has been reviewed by competent scholars. And they claim this, and this this has changed. The Passion Translation FAQ on their website has altered over the years. And now they say that uh, when they got with Broad Street Publishing and they they were going to release the whole New Testament – that they actually hired an even more diverse team of scholars to review the work carefully for accuracy. So this is on the website. This, these are in the claims. But and I've, I've actually reached out to Broad Street and said, hey, can I get the names of these scholars? Can I find out what their involvement is? I, I don't want to misrepresent anybody. But re, I want to recognize those claims are there. From your perspective, being someone who's reviewed the work, does it look like it's gone through that process? Does it look like the refinement of accuracy has happened? Absolutely not. Um, I, I've done a little bit of a consulting for some kind of major translations, and there is such a thorough vetting and balancing process, readership, um, readability process. This doesn't seem – I mean, I'm not trying to belittle what Simmons is doing, but he makes such amateur-like mistakes 
just in Galatians, which is the text that I looked at, that it comes across to me as unprofessional. If, if Simmons had hired someone like me just to deal with kind of basic level issues, I, I would have a ton to work with there to have to get it into a place to even be readable. Um, I, I, you know, we, I, I've taught seminary students and I have tried to train them to, to avoid some of the very commonplace things that he does uh, in this. So um, if there is a committee, it, it feels very superficial um, that this committee did anything like accuracy, readability, things like that. Yeah. Yeah. And it is tough because, in fact, in my opinion, from the background, and this is what I'm saying, I don't know what your opinion on this would be because you haven't looked into this, but it looks to me like he's chosen certain books to try to be better with and other books that he doesn't doesn't work as hard at. So Song of Solomon is like just nowhere near representing the original text. Genesis, it seems like he tried a lot harder to um, and brought in a, a scholar who actually understands the language better but just in Genesis. And so he wants you to think Genesis is reliable. So then you should reflect the whole translation as being reliable. And it's the whole thing just seems very deceptive. I mean, if Eugene Peterson went around saying this kind of stuff that Brian Simmons says, what would you think if, if, if he went around ag- like aggressively promoting it as a revival Bible and promising people that they would have special spiritual experiences if they read it, encouraging everyone to buy it? And, and it really has become the Bible for many Christians in many churches. It is the translation from the authentic, original Hebrew Aramaic text that is going to shock the daylights into you. Amen. It's going to absolutely stun you. I believe God gave me the key to the book of Proverbs. I'm telling you, secrets that only come from above have been embedded into the Proverbs. I really challenge you. Is that a good enough commercial? I really challenge you to get the Proverbs. The Spirit of the Lord came upon me. I told you I had a visitation from the one I love. He walked through my wall and breathed on me and released me to do this translation project. Uh, pastors that Man. picked it up and started weeping. Can you believe that? They just picked the book up and started crying. Thou shalt get the Passion Translation. Thou shalt buy it. Thou shalt really get it. Oh, yeah, that's right. We got some back there. You know, I would, if I were you, I would buy the translation of the Book of Psalms when it comes out in just a few weeks. I would buy it for no other reason than what I'm telling you right now. I discovered and uncovered so many mysteries and glory realms in the Book of Psalms. It will take your breath away. The romantic, poetic, heart-filled words of God will fill you with new passion and God's revival fire. You will get to know God on a deeper and more intimate level. The very words in this translation will go right past the defenses in your mind and right into your spirit. The Word of God will become so alive in you, and you will have a supernatural encounter with the glory and presence of God. So, uh, I think, Sid, I believe I got baptized in the spirit revelation in that library room of heaven. Every time I open the Bible, I get fresh insight. I, I, it speaks to me. It goes beyond the mind. I, I get uh, dreams and, and revelation from, from the Lord that is clear and uh, prophetic. There is a breath upon this work that goes beyond a human uh, translator. It is the Word of God. God breathed, and He is wanting this God-breathed Word to come alive in this last days, he wants to give us a revival Bible. And I believe the Passion Translation can really be a part of that. What does all that mean? Well, you get my translation, it should be really clear. Well, I mean, what's, what would your opinion be if, if, say, Eugene Peterson or somebody else who's made a translation did that? 
you know, about every six months, you know, a student of mine or a friend comes to me and says, you know, I, I discovered such and such translation. You know, the source is one I've heard of. And and, and they, they give it to me and they say, tell me what you think. And, and my usual response is ignore it. So the thing, the interesting thing about the past translation to me is not what Brian Simmons has done. Lots of people have claimed they have insight into revelation or unlocked eschatology or whatever. The thing that surprises me is that people are uh, buying into this as some kind of ultra superior translation. Um, it, 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 I could see, you know, some kind of really idiosyncratic churches doing that, but for denominations or, or networked bodies to do that, um, it, it's remarkable to me. Yeah, and we'll talk a little bit more about that as we move forward here. But you uh, you have in your paper a section where you ask the question, is Brian Simmons qualified to write an official use Bible translation? And you actually give three reasons why, in your opinion, he's not, at least from the evidence of his work. Can you walk us through each of those? Yeah, you know, one thing is um, normally translations have committees, and I've I've kind of gotten insight in some of these committees, and they really discuss and debate very vigorously, vigorously, uh, each of the kind of elements of um, each verse very thoroughly, and and he seems to be, even though he's mentioned, as you said, that he has people vetting it, he seems to be a man who's taken credit for this translation himself. Uh, and, and I think that's really dangerous and I would recommend people, uh, stray away from any kind of single author oriented translation. Uh, now, let me, let me just throw this out there cause I want to make sure that I'm putting his claims up against the things that, that the scholars that I've uh, brought into this project have said. So the passion translation website says, and I quote, Dr. Simmons used the same widely used standards marked by mainstream evangelical translations to make the passion translation an accurate faithful, clear, and readable translation for the tw- for 21st century English readers. And But you're suggesting that at least the evidence of the work itself is saying the opposite of what the, the, um, the buy this kind of publisher material is saying. I, I mean, that, that goes to my second point. Um, <clears throat> I cataloged in my report a lot of what I consider very unusual decisions, uh, translation decisions, um, He'll, he, will, he will move from somewhat literal to moderate to a lot of paraphrase and flourishes and embellishments back and forth. And it, I kind of feel whiplash when I'm reading it in terms of kind of what he's after in terms of the style of translation. But the, the, there's one issue, Mike, that I find most troubling, um, and that is his assumption that there is some kind of Aramaic original that he's drawing off of even though the vast majority, and, and majority doesn't even cover it. I mean, we're talking 99.9% of scholars uh, and seminaries and I assume pastors agree that the New Testament documents were written in Greek and not Aramaic, even though most of the New Testament writers were ethnic Jews. Um, Galatians in particular would be a strange place to argue that Paul wrote in Aramaic because <clears throat> yeah. he's, tr- he's talking to Gentiles. He's not talking to Jews in a very, in, a, in an area where there probably are not a lot, there's not a significant Jewish population. And so I have a whole bunch of reasons why it makes no sense at all to me. I just today finished a 120,000 word commentary on Galatians. And I, I couldn't even fathom an argument that there's an Aramaic original uh, okay. text. 
And here's here's where I need you, Dr. Gupta. <laughs> I need you to help us understand this because I think that you know people who don't know the original languages, they're like, well, Aramaic, Aramaic's like Hebrew, Hebrew. In fact, there's sections of the Old Testament that are in Aramaic. Maybe they're slightly mm-hmm. aware of these things. And then they look in the footnotes of the Passion Translation. And I mean countless times, people, countless times, Brian Simmons translates based on the Aramaic or uses the Aramaic in the footnotes to give you like the fuller understanding of a passage. Um, but here's what I want to do. I'd like for you to respond to the following statements from Brian Simmons about this. And, and I'm not making this up. I was blown away that I found this clip. All of our uh, Bible commentaries and our understanding of the New Testament is based on what is called Greek primacy, which is that the original manuscripts, the original autographs of the New Testament were all written in Greek. Guess what's happened in the last five years? This is really new. Brand new scholarship. Just like they discovered things archaeologically that are astounding, they have discovered, and I've, I've read the, the scholarly uh, reports, hundreds and hundreds of examples where it's been proven that the Greek manuscripts are second-gen copies of the original Aramaic New Testament. That virtually all of the New Testament, there could be some exceptions, but virtually all of the New Testament was originally in Aramaic and then copied into Greek. This causes all the scholars to freak out and go back to the trash can into the dusty corners of their libraries and pull out all the Greek manu- or all the Aramaic manuscripts and realize that they, they had thrown away the, the originals. Please tell us how crazy that is. You know... I, I, I became acquainted with this idea from Simmons, you know, in the last few weeks, just as I've been thinking about this, this interview. And so I thought, what am I missing here? So I've looked at a whole bunch of sources to try to figure out, okay, what's the latest conversation on what we call the textual history of the New Testament? And I couldn't find even a scrap of information that legitimizes anything he says. But uh, if I were to sit down with Simmons, and, and I would love to to be able to have a conversation about this, but if I were to sit down with Simmons, I, w- I would want to raise these issues about Galatians with him related to so-called Aramaic origin and, and get his thoughts on it. Because I, I, I wonder if he hasn't really thought about some of, the, some of these problems with his theory. Uh, number one, the idea of someone like Paul, a child of the diaspora, being fluent in Greek and writing Greek is not strange. Josephus, Philo, Letter of Aristeus. Many of the texts of the Old Testament pseudepigrapha, Jewish writings from around the time of Jesus and Paul, were written in Greek. That's not that strange of an idea that someone like Paul, right? He mm-hmm. doesn't call himself Saul. He calls himself Paul. Uh, someone like Paul, Paulos, would write in Greek. First of all, just there, it's not a strange idea. Number two, the earliest versions closest to the apostolic period of Galatians and other New Testament texts are in Greek. They're in Greek papyri. They're in some some other Greek codexes and manuscripts. Uh, third, um, we sometimes have loan words from Aramaic come into Greek, like Abba, which is in Galatians, Maranatha, which is you know in I think First Corinthians, Revelation. Uh, we have a few of these words, right? If we had an Aramaic origin, we would probably either have none of those words in the Greek manuscripts, or we would have lots of them. We'd have lots of them because they were written in Aramaic, and therefore they would want to be passed on. The reason we only have things like Abba, Maranatha, is because these were kind of embedded into early Christian worship, which did 
vocally have perhaps an Hebrew or Aramaic origin, but it makes perfect sense as written in Greek. But there, there are two other reasons I think that texts like Galatians would have been written in Greek. One is Paul quotes from the Old Testament, and his quotes tend to align with the Greek version of the Old Testament Septuagint. Um, that's a big conversation we can talk about <laughs> if you want to. But the other yeah. one is sometimes Paul uses wordplay that only makes sense in Greek. So, for example, he uses the word huios, which means son, to refer to Jesus. And then he uses huiothesia for adoption, which is a play on the word huios. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a connected word. And th- I can't imagine that would work out exactly the same in Aramaic or Hebrew or another Semitic. Um, so these kinds of, oh yeah, another one is where he says will and testament in chapter four, I think he's talking about, he's using the same word for covenant. And so he's playing off of this idea that a covenant is also like a will. Mm-hmm. It doesn't come out the same way in Aramaic or Hebrew. So, um, also he's talking about the Peshitta, which is a version of the Syriac similar to Aramaic, a dialect of Aramaic that comes from a later time. So he's really, it's conjecture. It's a guess. And the question is, is it a good guess? And I would say no. Yeah. So this is, this is such a big deal because here's what, what if, if I could summarize and correct me if I get this wrong. Um, pretty much nobody agrees with Simmons on this. His claims about scholarship and changes in scholarship and new views of things don't seem to re- align with reality. And his statements about going to Aramaic originals, when you say the Peshitta's late, that there are no Aramaic originals. Like, and not only do we have no reason to think it was an Aramaic, we have good reason to think it wasn't. And there are no Aramaic originals. He's really looking at the Syriac Peshitta, which is like a different thing that confuses the uninformed. But this is foundational. Mm-hmm. This is, I mean, his Aramaic stuff is foundational for his whole translation. He is constantly in the New Testament, constantly translating from the Aramaic. The footnotes are just full of the Aramaic says, the Aramaic says. And it really, it, it, as I started to realize, the reason why Simmons has all these passages with extra words, with no italics, is because he, he, A, he goes to the Aramaic, and then B, now that he's in the Aramaic, he finds homonyms in Aramaic, and he translates words multiple times into a text, making the verses much longer. Am I, am I out of line by saying his translation methodology is just totally bunk? Well, it's important that readers of the Passion Translation need to know he's <laughs> using things other than the Bible. Uh, he's using source material other than what we think of as the Bible. Uh, translations in other languages like Latin or Armenian or Georgian or Syriac, um, they they sometimes don't line up with those Greek manuscripts that we know and trust. And I think Simmons likes to find something different in order for – I'm just guessing here – but in order to find something really interesting to put in the translation – I think he likes that. And I think this when you mentioned what the translation is all about, he talks about new, he talks about kind of innovative things you never heard before. That's a dangerous approach to Bible translation. Um, our goal isn't to find new things. It's really to be faithful to the original things. And so um, I, if I were a publisher, I, I would be very, very concerned with anyone passing off as the Bible something using uh, material that comes from a later time than our best and earliest Greek manuscripts from the New Testament. <clears throat> that is so, I mean, this is so, so clarifying and helpful because I think this Aramaic issue is at the heart of reviewing, especially the New Testament. And and it's something that I think is just difficult to understand. So having somebody break it down so well, like you, I just 
I'm really excited to let people see this and evaluate it for themselves. Now, what about if you just wanted to use the Bible, the Passion, as like a supplementary version? Like, say you're, you're reading and studying the Bible in ESV and IV, NASB, or whatever, and then you occasionally look to this for different understanding of different verses. What do you think about that? I, I mean, my, my initial reaction is, why not just look at the message? I feel like the message does a mu- is much more consistent. Um, I preach uh, pretty regularly, and what I'll do is I'll read something like the NRSV or the NIV. But then during the sermon, I might, I might bring out the message, and I might read it because uh, there's some really interesting um, part of that that gives you a, a kind of feel for contemporary uh, language of that text. Um, but in Galatians in particular, Simmons makes what I feel like are very strategic theological points that are clearly opinions. And my question would be, are the readers going to know when that happens? Are they going to be able to know it's an opinion? Uh, are they going to be able to know there's a whole group of people that would argue against that, uh, that are scholars, translators, translations, um, it, it leaves it leaves a lot up to chance, up to trusting him as an interpreter of scripture. Basically, to use this as a translation, even as a supplement, you really have to trust that he understands New Testament theology, what the Bible is all about, and that sort of thing. And to be honest, I don't I don't feel like he has a good interpretation of Galatians here. <clears throat> well, that's very helpful. And who are hesitant about the message, and you hear Dr. Gupta here. Forgive me if I share this right now, but you hear Dr. Gupta saying, like, I would, you know, consider the message a supplementary about and this like gets your your hair standing up and you're like, the message. And I'm not a real huge fan of the message either. But surprisingly, here's the point. Here's a scholar who says the message would be a okay, okay <laughs> supplementary translation. And he still rejects the passion. And that's kind of the thing that I would really want us to highlight right here. Um, I am surprised though that how many of the guys I'm interviewing think that the message is a good supplementary translation. And it's making me wonder if I've judged it too harshly in the past because I've, maybe I've highlighted the worst parts. <laughs> well, if you don't think of it as a translation and you think of it as an illustration, um, that that's really its intent. It's not intended to be a translation. And when it's used as translation, then it, it is, it becomes more problematic because you start to question the choices that are made. Yeah. Um, the, the, the idea behind a paraphrase or something like the message is imagination. And so it comes and you don't want imagination in, in regular translations. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so, and I guess that's, so that's I react. Yeah. I react to it as a translation perhaps more than as a paraphrase. Cause I guess for some of us, we're just not super excited about paraphrases in general. Although I do like the new living translation on a personal level, um, which is kind of like somewhere between the two, I guess, isn't it? Yeah, it, it is. And again, I tend to use those things uh, for inspiration rather than, you know, kind of hardcore Bible study. When trying to define the Passion Translation, uh, it is difficult to define because there's what the publisher and the and the author are saying about it. But scholars seem hesitant, well, definitely hesitant to call it a translation, but they even seem hesitant to call it a paraphrase. It seems to be much looser than a paraphrase typically is. Like um, Dr. Longman said, it's a highly, highly, highly interpretive paraphrase because he just didn't feel like it was okay to just call it that. Uh, now, both you and Dr. Longman actually compared this to what's called a targum. Can you walk us through that? Yeah, targum, you know, so so it's kind of a, 
it's kind of a paraphrase that leans into explanation, sermonizing, or kind of breaking something down for kind of modern, uh, you know, contemporary explanation. So it, it kind of breaks the boundaries of a translation and moves more into kind of unpacking the theology, unpacking kind of the contemporary relevance. And so you you might want to say it's kind of a, a trans, translation paraphrase mixed with poetry or mixed with sermonizing. That that would be one way to explain it. And and that and the passion fits that because some of the choices that are made kind of burst out into almost like a little sermon. Um, and and if it matches up with theology, maybe that would be helpful for you. But I find it again so inconsistent, and I find it historically inaccurate on a number of levels that I I would not recommend it for that use. Well, I think this is a huge thing that I think that you don't notice as much if you're not from charismatic circles as I have had some experience there. Um, and I'm st- I still believe in the gifts of the spirit and the work of God through those things. So this is not at all some kind of skepticism or cynicism on my part. But as I read through the passion, I realize that the Targum-like elements are very frequently preaching points for charismatic or hyper-charismatic communities, which I think is why it's been endorsed by pastors like Bill Johnson or um, uh, over the, some of the Hillsong leadership has endorsed it. I'm trying to remember Bobby Houston endorsed it. And official endorsements, so they're promoting it as this great, amazing Bible translation. And I think it's, it's because it has added those preaching points. It's, it's less about the translation and more about the preaching points, which to me is the worst part because it's adding things to the text that aren't necessarily there. In some cases are um, incorrectly changing it. Uh, so let's dig into some specific examples. You mentioned verses in your paper and you gave like three different kinds or categories of decisions that were made in the translation. You talked about positive choices, unusual choices, and problematic choices. Let's start with positive choices. We're not trying to say nothing good about the passion here. What would you say are some positive choices you found? Um, you know, over and over again, he he deconstructs Christianese language and tries to find um, – other ways of using uh, biblical language. So, for example, the anointed one, or I think the Messiah, He kind of, I think he alternates. But um, I think that's reasonable, and I think it's helpful often to get us away from thinking of Christ as Jesus' last name. I mentioned that he refers to Gentiles as non-Jews, because many modern readers of the Bible that are in church don't know that Gentile means non-Jew. I like that as so well, So that actually. kind of stuff— Yeah, yeah you, that, you pointed that, that out, and I thought, yeah, that's, that's actually a really helpful way to translate Gentiles. Yeah, so so th- those are choices that I I find helpful, and he puts a little more emotion into the text in places that I feel like are appropriate. Um, I didn't love what he did with the fruit of the spirit, but I do think he added a little more emotion to it than our traditional translations do, which are okay. Um, you know, off with these kinds of things, it's you know there are good parts, you know, and and in the sense that. I, I I would accept it as kind of a, a paraphrase. Um, so so there there were there were enough things in there that to say okay there's something good here. Yeah. <clears throat> All right. Let's talk about some of the unusual choices um, that you found as you were reviewing this work. Yeah. So a, a big part of it is really inconsistency. Just. Um, Sometimes he'll use brother and sister language. Sometimes he uses friends when the scripture text uses brothers and sisters. Um, he does weird things like converting a rhetorical question to indicative statement as he does in 110. Um, 
one thing I thought was really strange was um, he keeps referring to things like legalism and the doctrines of Judaism and the Jewish religion. Um, and I found that kind of strange as if Paul's current uh, experience was not religion, yeah, um, which I, I would be hard to prove. But this so idea listen, I got it. I got to tell you this because you you looked at Galatians, not James. So the Passion Translation adds the word religion a great number of times, where other, like other translations just don't have that word. It's just added right. into the text. It's every time, and I looked up a bunch of them. Every time, it's in a very negative connotation. Religion's right. a bad word. Right. But in James, where it says that religion that God likes, right? That right, is, right, that right. Is, it was approved by God. He he changes that, and he won't put the word religion there, even though he translates that same word as religion in the verses prior. You think you're right. religious, and so in other words, he's added a bunch of negative connotations with the word religion. He's removed the one that should most obviously be a positive connotation of the word religion. And <clears throat> this is just to confirm what you're suggesting here. When you're like, he adds religious to, to this, like, and it's a negative thing. This is pervasive. This is his his preaching points put into the text. Yeah. And, and this idea of legalism, that the problem is legalism. Um, that's kind of a modern imposition. Uh, it's the issue is a little bit more delicate than that. And so I felt like that was really, really forced. Um, his use of faith language is kind of all across the map and it was unclear. Sometimes human faith, sometimes the faithfulness of the Messiah, um, his translation of doulos, which means slave, sometimes you translate slave, sometimes as servants, but it wasn't clear why he would translate one way or the other. So this is where I would want to step in and say, hey, you need to be clear about what the consistency of what you're doing, because it does matter to, to just a coherent reading of, of the Bible. This is stuff that would get weeded out in that checks and balances that normally yes, takes place. Absolutely. <clears throat> so what are some examples of what you called problematic choices? Yeah, well, a lot of this has to do with his use of his kind of Syriac, uh, Aramaic uh, inclusions. But some of the things, you know, I, I, I rewrote some of these down as I read it again today, the past translation. Um, so, for example, in, in Galatians 3.27, where Paul says, neither Jew nor Gentile, slave or free, he actually changes the text there to say rich or poor. And I feel like this is one of the most egregious problems uh, with his approach because it privileges a particular region or time period in a way that you really shouldn't do. Um, I think you can let the people of God decide how they want to apply that text for themselves rather than change it to another social status category. Um, I feel like it would neglect those places in the world or even in the U.S. today where there is slavery, sex slavery, or in other places in the world where there's actual slavery. So it's really privileging uh, his own worldview, his own conception of social status. He also talks about the natural realm. He, 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 he yeah. translates Wait, the let me, I'm, world. I'm so sorry to interrupt you. I, before you move on, I, I like to just mention this issue of slavery, of, of like removing the concept of slavery and replacing it with something else, uh, perhaps because he just thinks it's not important or not relevant to people, yet, yet he's pushing the translation worldwide. He's selling it worldwide. And it also appears the same egregious error appears in 1 Corinthians and Ephesians, you know, where in Ephesians it says slaves, now it says employees, and where it says masters, mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. don't threaten them. He, it's instead he changes this to shepherds of the flock, and now it's a teaching of to leaders, and it's about forgiving people, not not threatening them. And then in First Corinthians, it's this is something that was pointed out with uh, 
uh, a re- the interview I just did a couple days ago. In First Corinthians, he removes the the clarity of the statement that if a slave can be set free, then they should, and they should use that for the Lord. All of a sudden, it looks in his translation like they should just stay that way. Yeah. So there's a we recognize there's a line you can cross from contemporizing the language to actually changing it. Um, and, and this is one of those boundaries I think you shouldn't cross. I think he does that with how he translates world as the natural realm. Um, this is creating an almost Gnostic approach to theology to say that the world is only the natural realm. Because um, when Paul talks about the flesh, he's also talking about evil spiritual forces too. So mm-hmm. I, I don't like the equation of world with natural natural realm. It can create a kind of escapist spirituality that I can I think is very dangerous. A lot of the things that this translation does is not going to reach the level of pricking anyone's conscience immediately, especially for kind of lay people. It has a cumulative effect, I think, on kind of creating all these potholes and problems that can do a lot of damage. Some of the things are more obvious, but it's a lot of the subtle things that can kind of let certain historic heresies creep in to the text, things that uh, would never make it into major translations ever. Uh, they would be stopped at like door one, you know? Um, so I, those are very troubling. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> well, I'm, I'm just smiling cause I'm glad you're saying it out loud because <laughs> they're just, you know, uh, up until we did this, this project, there was very few people reviewing this work. And when they did review it, their reviews weren't getting well, like well read. They weren't being pushed around very much. And this is going to, I hopefully God willing, it's going to change that. And it'll be a, a something that will push the church towards loving God's word even better. So I'd like to get now. Um, oh, I'm sorry. Did you have any other of the problematic choices that you wanted to mention? Um, we talked about the religion one. Um, oh, he puts the word reward. Um, people kind of seeking a reward in language in the Galatians that isn't already there. And this is kind of the imposition of especially kind of imputation of Christ's righteousness theology, and there's nothing wrong with imputation theology. Uh, uh, Many, you know, God-honoring Christians follow that theology, but it's the kind of artificial insertion in it, into the text that I find troubling, which puts it more in the category of a kind of long sermon rather than what we might think of as official use translation. Yeah, that's a great example, because I, because I, I, that was one of the things I noticed in Galatians was the imputation stuff. And I was like, man, I mean, I, I hold to imputation of Christ's righteousness, but that doesn't mean you could just artificially throw it into a passage or force a, a force it to say it where perhaps it's, isn't the verse that's teaching that issue, that kind of thing. So, yeah. Um, <clears throat> all right. Let me, I like to get some quick fire responses at this point. I'm going to, I'm going to read some statements to you. These are um, from the Passion Translation website. This is in their promotional material. It's also in, in some cases in the Passion Translation itself, the new 2020 edition. And for those who were like, oh, wait, he just came out with a 2020 edition. It's true that Dr. Gupta reviewed the previous edition, but we double-checked all of his criticisms with the 2020 edition, actually hopeful that they would have changed. But actually, he's just added more footnotes that make things more problematic for the most part. Uh, But at any rate, here's the quotes. The first one is from page eight of the new edition. The Passion Translation is committed to bringing forth the potency of God's word in relevant contemporary vocabulary that doesn't distract from its meaning or distort it in any way. Quick fire responses. I'd be okay with that if you take out the word translation. 
All right. What do you think about it? it doesn't distort it in any way? <laughs> uh, I, I, if you take out the word translation, it is an opinion. And he's welcome to his opinion. My opinion is uh, he's, he's thrown himself off by depending on the Aramaic later Peshitta, Syriac Peshitta. He's already kind of thrown himself off of m- mainstream historic Christianity. So if, he, if he's going for that niche, you know, go for it. But he's, he's going to miss out on, on the majority of Christians that follow the, the creeds and so forth. Great. And then here's the next quote. The text was interpreted from the original language, carrying its original meaning and giving you an accurate, reliable expression of God's original message. Again, I'm trying to think if I were talking to Brian, what would I say? So I I would want to say um, the original text, as far as we know, were written in Greek, not Aramaic, especially Galatians, uh, which is what I looked at. And so... um, I, I think you'd have to make an academic case first that uh, the Aramaic's original. Don't refer to whatever someone else has written. Write your own book. Have it published in a peer-reviewed uh, space. And, and then you can you can try to create a translation based on that. I'd love to see him do that. That would be exciting. To just I guess it's like my version of, of watching a boxing match. <laughs> I want to see the, those ideas battle out. Um, and see him try to promote in in a scholarly circle what he promotes when he's preaching in front of charismatic crowds. All right, here's one more. This is from uh, Bill Johnson. He's the pastor of Bethel Church, and he is a very, very influential pastor mm-hmm. amongst especially the more uh, extreme charismatic fellowships. And he says, the Passion Translation is, quote, one of the greatest things to happen with Bible translation in my lifetime. Um, you know, Mike, I, I will say... Um, What's happening in seminaries over the last 20 years is fewer and fewer seminaries are requiring the biblical languages. There's a variety of reasons for that, economic, our education and grade school and things like that. But I'm discouraged to think about how many pastors out there don't know the biblical languages. Um, I went to Gordon-Conwell. We spent many, many hours in biblical languages. And it's one of the most important things I've ever done in my life is learn Greek and Hebrew, Aramaic, and so forth. Um, I, I'm guessing that some of these pastors endorsing this, they don't know much about the textual history of the Bible. And yet it's it's a precious thing that we guard as academics and as people that work at seminaries, that we guard that textual history, regard what the scribes have passed on over the years. So it, it's really discouraging to hear that people are considering this kind of a new, innovative, and reliable translation when we have really wonderful things already through the translations we have. Yeah, wow. Okay, in your opinion, should the Passion Translation be in bookstores, Bible apps, and places like Bible Gateway alongside other Bible translations? Again, I believe in kind of a free market economy of of education. So I tell people, um, read whatever you want. We're not in the business of book burning, but I will say, hopefully you have good pastors, mentors, um, that you trust that can tell you how to sort out the most beneficial things from the less beneficial. If someone walked in my office and said, Hey, what do you think of the pastor translation? I would say, ignore it. There you go. <laughs> All right. Now, for those who do want like a, a paraphrase, they're, they're looking for something, a supplemental, you know, translation. What would you recommend? What's an alternative to the Passion Translation where they feel like it just 
helps things be more simple or more lively to them? That's a good question. Um, I mentioned I mentioned the message, which not everybody loves, but I do. Uh, we mentioned the New Living Translation. I'll say a good devotional commentary. For example, Zondervan has a series called The Story of God uh, Bible Commentary. I just finished Galatians, as I mentioned. And uh, Scott McKnight, for example, has written on Sermon on the Mount. And Lynn Kohick uh, has written on uh, Philippians, I think. that. It's great because they give you the NIV text, but then they kind of walk you through devotionally kind of the meaning of the text. And those kinds of resources are wonderful. The NIV application commentary, similar Tyndale New Testament commentary. There's a whole bunch of really good stuff out there that's supplemental. I think my biggest concern, Mike, is um, it's being called a translation. Uh, In terms of kind of a homiletical spiritual formation thing, I don't agree with it. But there's lots of stuff out there I don't agree with. Mm-hmm. I think it should be recognized that it is a <clears throat> sermonic uh, interpretation of the New Testament. And as far as that's concerned, it can be used by whoever finds it helpful. I would recommend people to ignore it, but but that's my opinion. Yeah. I like that. I like the clarity you're giving us. I do really appreciate it. Let's pretend that a Christian turns to you and says, I'm getting the Passion Translation. My pastor said it's the best thing that's happened to Bible translation in our lifetime. And this person loves the Passion Translation. They feel like it's really blessed them. If you had just 10 seconds to tell them what they needed to know about the Passion Translation, what would you say? I'd say it it, it is idiosyncratic and it uses uh, innovative but not, uh, not historically credible approach to Bible translation. Uh, it's not a translation at all. Um, that's a misnomer. It's really more of a of a uh, amplification uh, from the opinion of the translator. I would say if you're going to use it, uh, make sure you're using a lot of other resources to compare it to. If you can learn Greek and Hebrew, all the better to really compare it uh, in a healthy way to what scripture says. Right on. Now I have to apologize ahead of time for the question I'm about to ask. <laughs> it's just a little awkward, but, uh, but it's important. And it's, this is how the, the translation is being sold amongst large numbers of people. Mm-hmm. Uh, Brian Simmons has said that God has supernaturally given him secrets of Hebrew and Greek. That God, It's like God put a chip in his head and gave him downloads that have given him knowledge of Greek and Hebrew. And it gives him knowledge into the true meaning of scripture. He talks about how his translation of different books will unlock your relationship with God. You'll fall in love with God all over again. All, all, these, all these different statements. Also in 2009, Jesus enters the room you're in and gives you an assignment. Tell me what that was. What a wonderful night that was. Uh, Again, I was in my room, and uh, the uh, presence of the Lord became tangible, heavy, thick, so powerful that I I slipped out of bed and knelt there by my bed, and the one I love came and uh, commissioned me. He says, I'm commissioning you to do this translation project. And he breathed on me, just blew his breath upon me. I'll never forget that experience. And he promised me that that he would give me help, that he would stand with me and give me secrets of the Hebrew language, secrets of the Bible that would be for this last day's awakening. And uh, that was the beginning of the Passion Translation Project. I have to tell you, when I read your translation, it's like, so, I mean, I've read every, just about every translation, but there's something fresh. Do you think it has anything to do with the Lord blowing on you when you had your visitation? 
that he wanted his breath on the words? I would say that humbly, that there is a breath upon this work that goes beyond a human uh, translator. He breathed on me so that I would do the project, and I felt downloads coming instantly. I received downloads. It was like I got a chip put inside of me. I got a connection inside of me to hear him better, to understand the scriptures better, and hopefully to translate. So based on your examination of Galatians, what do you think of those claims? Does it look like this is the result of supernatural empowerment? You know, the Apostle Paul says, don't reject prophecy. And if this is a form of prophecy, we can't outright reject it. But then Paul says, test it. And so that's what we do. We test it. We test it against the historic uh, transmission of Scripture through scribes, through translations, through translators for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. Um, I have a lot of academic training. I've spent a lot of time uh, fine-tuning my Greek I spent a lot of time in Galatians, and just from the exercise that you've helped me uh, undertake to, to criticize this, uh, I found that his claim for having revelatory knowledge and interpretation, uh, I would consider that false, um, and I would caution people against it. Thank you. The last thing was just this. I'd like, if you would, just to read the closing paragraph from your review. I think that this just succinctly put it all out there. If, if people haven't got the point yet, <laughs> then this closing paragraph would really help people get the idea. Yeah. Uh, overall, I found the passing translation of Galatians occasionally thoughtful, but largely haphazard and amateur in its translation techniques. It lacks a consistent translation method and does not take into account major trends and agreement in Galatians' biblical scholarship. Many of the additional flourishes and interpretive glosses that the Passion Translation includes are misleading and overly speculative. Overall, I take Passion Translation's Galatians as the personal opinion of a missionary, which may have some value in its own right, rather than a consistently accurate translation of the Greek text of Galatians for serious use. Dr. Nijay Gupta, thank you so very much. And you did, I just want people to know if they were interested in your insights and they found these things valuable, then they can look for your commentary on Galatians. You just finished it. When does it actually come out? Probably 2022, but... Uh, oh, wow. Okay, well, what's something else you've done that they might look at? <laughs> uh, yeah, I've written a commentary on First Second Thessalonians and on Colossians and the Lord's Prayer. And I can, I can send Mike links to those and people can find them. I'll put them in our description down below as well for people who are interested. So thank you so much, doctor. I am like really, I'm so excited about this because I feel like it's, it's going to impact people by bringing them back anchored to the scripture and the word of God and the revelation that was already sufficient before Brian Simmons showed up. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, you know, you know, what's disappointing to me, Mike is, um, you know, I, I, I keep my ear to the ground. I'm an academic, but I try to keep my ear to the ground and I, I, I only occasionally hear about the Passion Translation, and yet uh, you've helped communicate to me that it has a massive influence uh, and growing. Yeah. And this is just one of those ways that I'm discouraged that people in my position are not regularly listening to people in the churches uh, to know what they're wrestling with and thinking about. And vice versa, the people in the churches aren't looking to us for advice on translations, except through yeah. intermediaries like you. So I thank you for your ministry for that. Yeah, well, hey, I'm, I'll be the bridge. 
I'll be the bridge and <laughs> bring, bring you all together. And so, yeah, many people are just, they just didn't know. They literally didn't know that there were scholars who like professionally worked in these things that aren't just like stale, spiritually dead, religious hypocrites, which is actually, I think that Brian Simmons tries to present things like this. He, he, he says things like angry translators make angry translations. You know, angry translators are going to have angry translations. Why, why don't we get translations that give us the real deal? And even in his own translation, he, he calls the scribes like religious scholars, like because it's, mm. it's as though he's preparing the audience for the criticism that you might bring. Mm. At any rate, when they hear you, they realize that's not what you are. <laughs> and we appreciate that. So thank you so much. Thanks, Mike. Now, I loved that interview, and I'm really grateful for Dr. Gupta to be part of this project. I'm actually loving how the Passion Project's coming together. Now, behind the scenes, I've actually done a bunch of these interviews already, and I'm editing them and putting them up about one week at a time for the first five interviews. What I will then do is continue the project long term. You'll see some more stuff coming out in the future. Uh, I'll let you know as things become available. Reminder, every single paper is totally free. Every single video is totally free. There's a link down below where you can get all of the content and use it to your heart's content. I think we're making a real difference right now. The passion project that we're doing is going to stop the spread of misinformation that's coming out of Brian Simmons, coming in the passion translation itself, in the translation in the footnotes, and also from the website and Broad Street Publishing. This information seems to be misleading and as we have scholars review it and share their honest opinions it seems to confirm that very much so i'm interested in the other reviews that are coming but in the meantime keep your eyes out for a video i'll put up coming soon on brian simmons false prophecy uh, this isn't a, something a scholar's doing it's something i'm doing brian simmons has actually a, a track record of prophecy i wasn't expecting to find out about this but as i reviewed his videos as i was looking into his content trying to gather information for this project i actually found statements that are clearly erroneous and they're big major prophetic statements now why would i cover this because if i can show that the man claims to hear from god and prophetically fails which means he's not hearing from god then that means all the claims of secrets and in, in, in insight and holy spirit inspiration that he's giving regarding the translation all those claims are now brought into question we don't have a reason to believe those things even though i do believe god can speak to you like that I just don't think he spoke to Brian that way. I'm hoping that each of these interviews acts like a mini Bible study to you as well, that that in addition to enlightening you on this translation, it just edifies you and builds you up. And if you like this kind of thing, you might want to subscribe because I have hundreds and hundreds of videos giving us basically how to think biblically about everything, or at least the best of my ability, trying to help enable you to understand scripture, to be able to think things through, to be able to reason things through in a biblical fashion. So yeah, if that sounds fun, subscribe.